Brothers and sisters, it is good to be back with you this week, uh, especially missing a couple weeks ago with quarantining. We're all fine. We tested negative. We're good. Praise be to God. Um, and then last week, we were uh, in Florida visiting my parents and spending some time together. Um, and it was a glorious time. Uh, it was very sunny. It was upper 70s for a few days. So that was pretty glorious. Uh, Levi, Levi got to see the ocean for the first time. So that was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, and on our way home uh, in the shuttle uh, from the rental car to the airport, um, I got talking with our driver, and he happened to be from Columbia, uh, which we love. We have a connection there. Um, and he had said that he also had lived in Chicago uh, for 25 years, and now he had been in Florida for the past 20 years. And so I said, what brought you from Chicago to Florida? And he just laughed. He just laughed and he started just looking around. <laughs> Do you see this? Why won't you move to Florida? Are you crazy? You know, and so he, it's almost as if he said, are you out of your mind? How could you not move from that cold weather down to here? You know, and as human beings, we do this all the time, right? We make rational judgments about the things other people do, behavior, or the, the choices they make. Oh, you live in Chicago? That's crazy. You prefer Lou Malnati's to Giordano's? Are you nuts? Because you are nuts if you would choose that. <laughs> but for other serious things as well, oh, you're going to change careers? Ooh, that seems a little crazy. You're going to give how much money away? You're going to move for God? Are you nuts? See, we make all kinds of rational judgments like this. And as Jesus was uh, going through his life in the Gospels, people were making all kinds of judgments about him. I want you to listen to what Mark has recorded people saying so far. What is this? A new teaching and with authority? He orders to impure spirits and they obey him. I just realized I'm talking with my mask on. Let me take this off. I did not even realize this. That was probably a little distracting. <laughs> but they say, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Look, why are, they, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, these are things that people said in just the first two chapters of Mark. And so far, Jesus has already attracted a huge following. And when we get to chapter 3, which I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles or on your phone, you can follow along. Uh, you can turn there with me, but in chapter 3, it begins by Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath, and then crowds were pressing in upon him, so much so because they wanted to touch him so that they might be healed. And then he goes up on top of a mountain, which kind of seems eccentric, and then he calls 12 disciples to follow him and to start doing the same things that he has been doing. Now, if you were Jesus' brother or sister, or mother, what would you think about what's going on? In verse 20, it says, As Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. 
And it's at this point, Jesus' family, they've had enough. In verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. They said, he's crazy. He's nuts. He's, He's lost it. He's gone mad. And friends, they weren't joking. They really thought this. They believed that this is not what a Messiah should be doing. He was supposed to be getting in good with the religious leaders and the authorities and the Romans, not infuriating them. He was supposed to become the king, the actual king, not a monk on a mountain. He was supposed to rule from the throne in Jerusalem, not be an itinerant preacher. Has he gone mad? Has he let this whole Messiah thing go to his head? Was he messing up God's plan? So it says, they went to take charge of him. Now, this is a word, this take charge in the Greek. It's in other places, it means to arrest or to seize. They're going to seize Jesus because they want to put a stop to what he's doing. They want to take him back home so that he might come to his senses. That's what's going on. They thought he was crazy. Why was it coming to this in this point? Why did people think Jesus was out of his mind, even his own family? I want to talk about three, three reasons why. The first is this. Because Jesus challenges people's beliefs and traditions. He challenges people's beliefs and traditions. Now, last week, if you listened or were here, Camilo talked about uh, Jesus eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, and the, that was scandalous. The Pharisees, they were very concerned about keeping God's law, so they had developed all kinds of oral traditions about how to do that best. And they believed that eating with sinners could taint them morally, And if they came into contact with unclean food or utensils or people who hadn't done the ritual washings, uh, that would make them ceremonially unclean and therefore unable to enter the temple. So in other words, this would somehow inhibit them from being able to go to church and worship. And so this is also the reason why in the Good Samaritan, the priest and Levite, they're not willing to stop and help the man who is beat up on the side of the road. They don't want to contaminate themselves. And so Jesus saw this interpretation of God's law and God's ways as completely misguided and missing the point. Because for Jesus, it is always about the unbreakable union between love of God and love of my neighbor. If our traditions, if our beliefs, if our politics, if they keep us from loving our neighbors well, especially the vulnerable, the sick, the homeless, the poor, the immigrant, and the prisoners, the vulnerable, all those Jesus lists in Matthew 25, if those things prevent us from loving them well, then we are misguided as well. If our beliefs, if they limit us from fellowshipping with, connecting with, reaching out to those who most need God, then we are horribly wrong. Now, we can take this to an extreme. I've seen people do. They say, well, we just need to love people, reject any tradition, reject all tradition or beliefs that are restrictive on people at all. Well, that's not what Jesus is doing or saying here either. He said he is calling sinners. It's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. He does not shy away from calling us what we are. We are beloved sinners, rebellious children the sick in need of a doctor. His love never says that wrong is right. 
So traditions aren't wrong. Many are wonderful, but Jesus challenges all the traditions and beliefs that would hurt the outcast and the vulnerable, that would somehow prevent us from extending love and fellowship and grace and relationship to all people. And so Jesus came to sinners. He offered table fellowship with them so that He might draw them unto repentance and salvation. And people thought Jesus was crazy for doing this because they believed a righteous teacher should not fellowship with sinners. And they also believed that He was crazy for challenging the interpretations around the Sabbath. In Mark, he, his, him and His disciples, they walk through the grain field and they pick the grain. And then He heals a man on the Sabbath at the beginning of chapter 3. And the religious leaders, they are furious with Him. And Jesus asked them, well, what is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? You see, the Sabbath, it was extremely important to Jewish people. It's the fourth commandment, right? Uh, and the lack of obedience to Sabbath keeping was one of the reasons the prophets had said that God had punished them with exile. So they better get keeping Sabbath right this time around, now that they're back from exile. But unfortunately, they went too far. They put the traditions over people, over healing, over good over saving life. And it's always good to ask ourselves, are we ever in danger of doing this ourselves? If Jesus were with us again, incarnate in the flesh, He is with us by His Spirit, don't forget. But if He is with us in the flesh, would He challenge any of our traditions? How would we react if He challenged the way we worship, the songs we sing? What if He spent very little time with us church people, because he was with unchurched people, eating with them and reaching them. And what if he said, by the way, you should be doing the same thing? The pastor, the staff, the congregation, you should be focusing more on the people outside the walls than those who are inside. Would we not call him mad? How can you sustain a church like that? Well, apparently you can because that's how the first one started. <laughs> but Jesus' teaching, it challenges us so much because it's like the exact opposite of what our flesh wants and what our flesh thinks. And I was trying to think about how to think about this, and I want you to imagine that you were, you're trying to train a dog, okay? Okay, bu okay, buddy. When a human throws a stick or a bone, do not run. Do not go fetch that stick or bone. Stay put and be calm and don't go fetch for it. Okay, when, okay, buddy, when, when a, a human being rings our doorbell, don't bark. Don't go running up and annoying them. Stay calm and greet them with a handshake. All right, buddy, all right, buddy, boy. When we're out in public and you see a fire hydrant, don't go right then and there. <laughs> Wait till you get home and be a civilized dog. Friends, this is what it's like when Jesus teaches us His kingdom teaching. It is so opposite of what we would want to do. Because Jesus says, imagine the situation. You know, when, when someone wrongs you, when someone slaps you on the cheek, everything in you might want to get even, might want to get them back. But Jesus says, resist that. Love do good to them, bless them, 
pray for them. When you have more money than you need, everything in you might want to spend it or to save it or to invest it in this life. And Jesus says, store up treasure in heaven, give to the poor. When stress and anxiety and situations that we can't control, when they happen to us, everything in us could lead to a spiral of negative thinking. And Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Your heavenly Father cares for you. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the upside-down teachings of Jesus. And by the way, this is why discipleship is a lifelong process. It's a journey. It's so opposite of what we are inclined to do. And it seems upside down, but in truth, it's actually right side up. This is how we're supposed to live. And so Jesus wants to retrain our impulses into his kingdom thinking. And if you begin to believe these things, if you begin to put them into practice in your life, other people around you might think, you know what? They're kind of crazy. They're kind of crazy. Because you will challenge the way they think. You will challenge traditions. You will challenge beliefs. And in fact, Jesus said, beware when everybody speaks well of you. Because that might be a sign that you're actually fitting into the world, not standing apart from it. It could be a sign that you're not out of your mind enough yet. So that's one reason why people thought Jesus was crazy. He challenged their beliefs and their traditions. A second reason is because Jesus heals people and drives out demons. He heals people and drives out demons. If Jesus' family, they, they've come to the conclusion he's out of his mind. But others were drawing an even more evil conclusion. Look at verse 22. The teachers of the law, they came down from Jerusalem. They said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. Now, Jesus was drawing such large crowds uh, because he was doing these incredible things, healing people, driving out demons. And uh, that's why he was drawing such large crowds. Um, and because of this, that seemed pretty crazy to people. I mean, it's not like it's something like you see every day, right? So, but I would have to say right off the bat, you know, most people in our culture were probably not in danger of coming to the same conclusion of these teachers of the law. They think it's probably, they think it's by the power of Satan he's doing, he's doing these things. We're, more, we're more, more likely to come to the conclusion that Jesus is out of his mind for believing that there's demons. I mean, aren't these cartoonish characters? Aren't, aren't these medieval, outdated ideas? You really believe there's an enemy? Now, friends, I'm of the belief that Jesus is the most sane, wise, intelligent person who's ever lived among us. I believe he, he, he was God incarnate walking this earth. So when he speaks, I listen. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. It's recorded that Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. It's, he said that the thief, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life abundant. So for Jesus, Satan is the enemy of God and humanity. So we need to be crazy enough to believe that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against each other. There, is a, there are spiritual dark forces in this world. And so some of our problems, they will never be solved by worldly means or worldly thinking. 
because many of our problems are spiritual. And spiritual problems need spiritual solutions. Spiritual problems need spiritual truth. Spiritual problems need spiritual power. So we have to get that right first. So it's, it's like an AA. You need a power outside yourself for what you're facing. And that power is Jesus Christ. But people in Jesus' day, they believe this. They believe in the power. They believe in the reality of the spiritual realm. And when the, the teachers of the law, these are the ones they should know better. They teach God's law. They should be the one who knows God's word. So when they come to the conclusion that Jesus is doing these miracles and driving out demons by the power of the prince of demons, I don't know about you, but I cannot think of a greater insult to the Son of God than that. I cannot think of a more false claim than what these teachers are saying. But Jesus, in his grace, he actually reasons with these teachers. You know, he says the whole house and kingdom divided, it won't stand. You know, if, if, if Satan is attacking his, his own kingdom, it won't be long before he brings his whole kingdom down. It makes no sense that Satan would do that. Notice, it's the teachers of the law who are out of their mind and not Jesus. And then he says in verse 27, In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So Jesus compares Satan to some type of strong man. He says, I've, I've actually bound him up. I've tied him up. And the fact that I'm doing these things is not evidence that I'm Satan. It's evidence that I've bound him up. It's evidence that I'm invading his kingdom. So he says in verse 28, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Let's pause there. Because that is one of the most astonishing phrases in the Bible. You can be forgiven of all your sins and every slander you utter. Oh, what an ocean of grace is available in Jesus Christ. Everything you've done can be forgiven, friends. Don't lose sight of that when we get to the next phrase. Because Jesus says a phrase that gives many of us pause. Verse 29, All this can be forgiven, every slander, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. That's kind of a big deal. <laughs> so what, what does this mean? So what's happening is the Spirit of God is revealing Himself dramatically in Jesus through His miracles, through His driving out of demons, through His teaching. And Jesus is saying, this is evidence that I've tied up Satan, not that I am Satan. So the teachers of the law, they are attributing the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus to satanic, demonic, evil forces. They said this is happening by Satan's power, not God's power. And so in this context, this is what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. It's calling the work of God's Spirit in Jesus satanic. The teachers' minds, they are so warped. They are, they are so out of, out of their mind that when they look at Jesus, they conclude it's Satan. And because of that, they utterly reject the one person who offers eternal life and salvation. Grant Osborne says this likely works both ways. These people will never, they will never, uh, they won't ever want Jesus to save them and God won't forgive them of rejecting Christ like this. It's a solemn warning. Now, if you've ever been worried, have I ever committed this sin? If you're worried about that, that's a sign that you have not committed this sin. 
Because this, this was a willful, settled uh, action, ongoing conviction of these teachers of the law. And I think it's likely that their minds are so warped that they, will, they won't ever want to come to salvation. But even if that's the case, Jesus may in fact even be warning them here. He may even be telling, the, telling, them, telling them this so that they might, their eyes might be opened and they can repent. Now, we needed this little sidebar discussion, but I don't want you to miss the real crazy thing Jesus said. You can be forgiven of all your sins in Jesus Christ. Murder, blasphemy, lust, dissension, gossip, adultery, lying, idolatry, coveting, greed, drunkenness, slandering, anything else that you can think of that you're ashamed of, all of that can be forgiven. That is the crazy thing, because much of this world says people deserve punishment for their wrongdoing. In fact, even many countries in our world, they say people deserve to die for the wrongs that they have done. And Jesus says there is an ocean of grace. And even if you are or were a murderer or a persecutor like Paul, you can be forgiven and your life can be turned around. That's the crazy thing. He challenges our beliefs and our traditions. And Jesus claims he has tied up Satan and now spiritual power is available for healing, the driving out of demons, and forgiveness. And the last reason I want to point out today why people thought Jesus was crazy is that Jesus commands loyalty to himself over your own family. He commands loyalty to himself over your own family. So we started with this whole sermon with Jesus, his family, saying that he's out of his mind. And they came to seize him. They came to put a stop to him. And then we had the whole issue with the teachers of the law. And now his family is coming back on the scene. Now, this is very typical of Mark's writing style in this gospel. This is called a Mark sandwich. Okay, you got the family, you got the teachers of the law, and now you got the family. You see what he's doing? He wants us to see these stories all together, making kind of the same point. Family, teachers of the law, family. So then verse 31, it says, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in, someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Now, going back to the teachers of the law part of the sandwich, Jesus has just said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus' own house, his own family, is divided against him at this moment. And it's because Jesus is coming, his, his, his lordship, it, it forces people to choose and make a decision about who he is and who their allegiance is really to. And this may at times put, put us at odds with those we love, with our biological family, with people around us. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 10, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Wow, it's intense. And it seems like Jesus may have even said this out of his own harsh experience. His own family wants to seize him and put a stop to him. And Jesus says in Matthew 10 again, the one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Doesn't that seem kind of crazy to you? Jesus says, to be worthy of me, you need to love me more than your own family, more than your parents, more than your children. And Jesus' own family, they're outside. That's an ominous setting Mark puts them in. They're not a part of the inner circle of disciples. They're outside calling into Jesus. And we know that later, his mother and brothers, some of them will come to faith after the resurrection. They'll join the church. But now, they're not inside the circle. And in verse 33, Jesus says, Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. He looked at those seated in the circle around him. And he said, Who, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. I mean, wow. In this first century context, this is extremely scandalous in a culture that heavily prioritized the family, but is it not still in our individualistic society today? Is this not still scandalous? You know, people wonder about this. You know, who has, who has the audacity to undermine the nuclear family? Who has the audacity to undermine a parent's authority over their children? Who has the audacity to say that you should love me more than your parents, more than your kids? And if I, if, if I said to you as your pastor that you should prioritize the kingdom over your family, would you not call me mad? Would you not think that I am crazy? But the upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom is this. When you seek his kingdom first, when it's first place in your life, then everything else gets put into its proper place. And if we get any of our priorities messed up, if we get that first thing wrong, everything else begins to go haywire in some way. And Jesus says, no, seek me first, love me more. Not to not love your family, not to not honor your parents, that's the fifth commandment, but love me more, love me first, pursue my kingdom first. N.T. Wright says, how easy it is to slide back again into a sense of belonging, of group identity, that comes from something other than loyalty to Jesus. We substitute long-standing friendship, membership in the same group, tribe, family, club, party, social class, or whatever it may be. But the call to be around Jesus, to listen to Him, even if those outside think us crazy, that's what matters. The church in every generation and in every place needs to remember this and act on it. See, the world, the workplace, our neighbors, even members of our own family, they might think we're crazy for believing the things we do, for living the ways that we do, for pursuing Jesus, because following Him will produce a reaction and a choice and a division of some kind. But friends, I want you to hear the good news that's contained in this passage. No matter where you come from, no matter whether you are close to your biological family, no matter whether you're not close to them, no matter whether there's hurt and pain in those families, no matter whether you are married or single, no matter whether you have children, no matter whether people around you like you or accept you, Jesus welcomes you into his family simply because you love him, simply because you're faithful to him. And in Jesus, you have a loving family. Here's the crazy thing. In Jesus, we are family. You are my brothers and sisters and my mother and fathers. You're my kids, grandparents, some of you. 
We're family in Jesus Christ. Even though we have no biological connection, we have no reason to be together other than the fact that we both love Jesus Christ. That's why you're in my life. That's why we're in each other's lives. Because we're around Jesus. So come into this circle of belonging and remember that we exist to welcome people to be family with us. We are invited to be the house, to be the kingdom that is not divided but is united around Jesus. In this broken world, Jesus makes us family with Him and with one another. So friends, as C.S. Lewis put it, Jesus, He is either a pathological liar or a supreme lunatic of some kind or He actually is Lord, and was teaching the truth when he spoke. Which one is he to you? Are you willing to follow this guy who taught these crazy things? Are you willing to follow this man who healed people, who drove out demons, and he demands loyalty to himself even above your own family? Will you follow him? If so, I want to ask you, what would it look like for you to live in such a way that people noticed you're slightly out of your mind for Jesus. You're a little crazy. What would it take for people to notice that? What would it take for your impulses to be retrained in Jesus' kingdom teaching so that you're not like that dog unable to, 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 to fetch the bone or not fetch the bone, but that actually becomes natural to follow Jesus in His way. And so as you let the Spirit guide you this week, as you reflect on those questions, I want you to hear the good news. Jesus was so out of his mind for you. He was so out of his mind in terms of worldly thinking, he did what was unthinkable to us. Rarely does a person even give their life for a righteous person, but Jesus came down. He became one of us. He went to that cross. He took your punishment. He took your sin. He took your death and he buried it into the grave and rose again so that you could be united to him and welcome into the family of God and all your sins, no matter how bad they are or have been or will be, they can be forgiven through him, through his cross and resurrection. Amen. Amen. Isn't that good news? He is our rescuer. So won't you give your life to follow the one who crazily gave it all for you?